0: If you have a Bible, go ahead and take it and turn to Luke chapter 13, Luke 13, and we're going to be looking at verses 31 through 35, I think the sun's coming out, we need that, it's kind of a little cloudy and I just... Felt a little tired, and we've got to think hard this morning because this is not easy stuff. So, uh, get ready to engage your brains. Feel free to get some coffee if you need it. There's probably some left. Uh, but we're going to think in Luke, uh, from Luke 13 verses 31 through 35. Um, there was a popular commercial, I think it was a Super Bowl commercial, with the little kid dressed as Darth Vader. Did you guys see this commercial? It's a Volkswagen commercial. He's going around his house trying to use the power of the force to do different things. He's got the Darth Vader mask, and he's holding his hands out trying to, to move things or start things, and nothing has happened, and he keeps getting more and more disappointed until his dad pulls in the driveway in his his new car. And the car is shut off, and, and the little boy goes out dressed as Darth Vader and holds his hands out in front of the car trying to do something, and all of a sudden, the car starts. He says, oh, I did it! I started the car with the power of the force, and then they flip inside, and his dad has the remote start there, and he just kind of, you know. So, uh, there is the, it's this picture of, of apparent power. <laughs> this little boy thinks that he has done something amazing. He thinks that he is in control of, of this car engine, when in actuality he has not really done anything, but it's his father who had all the control and was the one starting that. And, and as we, we look at this uh, this passage, I think we're going to see pictures of, of real power, real control in Jesus, and also apparent power. The people who think that they're in control but but really aren't. I think that's true of us sometimes, isn't it? We think that we are in control. We have fooled ourselves into thinking that that we have uh more control of our lives and of the things that go on around us than maybe we really do and And I think that what hopefully we will see here is that the control of jesus the the power of Jesus, the sovereignty of jesus that he is is controlling and guiding and orchestrating everything that happens. But not only that we would see the control of Jesus, but we're also going to see the compassion of Jesus. So those are kind of the two things that we're going to see, the control of Jesus and the compassion of Jesus. And in the midst of that, try to think, how do we live in light of those things? How do we live in light of the fact that, that God is in control of everything, that nothing happens outside of, of his power and his will, but also to think about the compassion of Jesus and how that should change us in different ways. One of the thoughts that I've had as I'm trying to formulate, this is again a difficult passage, but trying to formulate exactly what's going on here is that that life in some sense is lived in the tension between the sovereignty of God and and my desires. That so often I have things that I want to see accomplished, things that I want to do, and yet God is is sovereign. We... Uh, make plans. Have you heard this phrase? We make plans and and God laughs. laughs. I don't know if that's true necessarily, but there is this sense in which God is in control of everything. But we're also we have desires and we're sometimes we're trying to bring these things together to understand. Well, what does God want and what do I want? And hopefully those things go together. And sometimes they don't, and we get confused or or frustrated. Um, and so maybe a main thought to give you this morning is God is in control, no matter how much we think we are. <laughs> God is in control no matter how much we think we are. Often we think that we are in control, but God actually is. And so I want us to look at this passage here, Luke 13. Let me go ahead and read it, and then we'll try to formulate some thoughts around it. Luke 13, beginning in verse 31, the text says, At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, said to Jesus, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen, Gathers her brood under her wings, and you are not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken. And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. God is in control no matter how much we think we are. Just looking as your eyes are still in the text there, I want to note kind of something that links it all together. Um if you see in verse thirty one it says uh, the Pharisees came and they said, get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. So there's this, this verb there, Herod has a desire, he wants, it's, um, it's his wish to kill you. Uh, That same word is used in verse 34, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together? How often I wished, I had wished, I desired, I wanted to gather your children together. Same word. Herod wants to kill you. Jesus wants to gather Israel together as a hen gathers her, her chicks. And then the third time at the end of verse 34, As a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing, you did not want to. So three desires that are going on here, and I think that that's kind of linking this passage together. Again, this idea of the tension between the desires of God and our desires. So Herod wants to kill Jesus. Jesus wants to gather all Israel, all Jerusalem, under his wings like a mother hen. And Israel does not want to be gathered in that way. So there's all these competing desires that are going on here. I don't think it's by mistake that it's the same word used each time. We're gonna break it down though in in uh, verses thirty one through thirty three and then verses thirty four through thirty five so let's think first verses thirty one through thirty three and we're going to think about the control of jesus the control of Jesus in the face of false power the control of Jesus in the face of false power. The scene opens in verse thirty one And here Jesus is given a death threat. (laughs) He's given a death threat by one of the most powerful men in Israel in that day, a man known as King Herod. Uh, This is Herod Antipas. Herod was a ruler in Israel. He was underneath the rule of Rome. So Rome is in charge of the land of Israel, but Herod is put there as um, a Jewish man who is in charge of a certain area. He's in charge of uh, the area that includes Galilee as well as some other areas. And Galilee, you remember, is where Jesus has done a lot of ministry. And so Herod has heard about Jesus. He's intrigued by Jesus. Um, And Herod Antipas, he's the son of a man named Herod the Great. If you know anything about Herod the Great, you know he wasn't that great. Um, And in this passage, we know now that his son is acting a lot like him. In Matthew's gospel, you know the story of the wise men, the magi, the, the three or however many there were that came from the east. They came looking for the king of the Jews because they had seen the star. They'd seen this amazing constellation of some sort. And it had said there's, there's a king born in Israel. And so they show up and they come and King Herod is the first person they meet. And they say, we saw this star and there's a king born here. And Herod says, oh, I'm so excited about that. Let's find out where he is. And they discern that he's uh, he would have been born in Bethlehem. And so the, the wise men go to Bethlehem or headed to Bethlehem. Before they leave, Herod the Great says, when you get there and you find out where he is, come back and tell me so that I can come and worship him. Well, Herod the Great really had no interest in worshiping this new king who was Jesus, but in fact in killing uh, this young child because another king threatened him. And so Herod wanted to kill this child. So the the wise men, they go and they, they meet Jesus. And then in a dream it tells us that they are warned not to go back to Herod and so they leave. Well, Herod the Great catches wind of this and he's not going to be foiled. So he decides, since he can't find out what child this was that was born that's going to be a king, he says, well, I'll just kill every child two years old and under. So he wipes out every child in the land of Israel two years old and under. Can you imagine that? That's who this guy is, Herod the Great. Imagine growing up with him as your father. And so this is this is Herod the Great's son. And so we know this isn't an empty threat, <laughs> not just because of who his father was, but also because Herod had already done his own share of murdering. You remember that he's the one that, that cut off John the Baptist's head. After he made a rash vow, it was a stupid decision and he really didn't want to do it, but he ended up doing it anyways. So, this is this is not an, an empty threat. This is something that, that Herod is, is willing to follow through with. Uh, the other question we need to ask though here is, why are the Pharisees telling Jesus this? Well, the Pharisees are so often against Jesus, and Jesus is always calling them out, and there's sort of this uh, this tension between them all the time. So, what's? Why are the Pharisees telling Jesus this? It seems like they're they're looking out for his best interest. Maybe they were. It's hard to know. Maybe this group of Pharisees cared about Jesus. They could have some other ulterior motives. Um, are they just trying to get him out of the city because they're in Galilee? Jesus, Herod wants to kill you, so why don't you leave? <laughs> they're trying to get rid of him. Um, do they like Herod's idea? Maybe they're trying to flush Jesus out of the area so that Herod can have his, his will with, with Jesus. We don't know their true motivations, but they probably aren't uh, looking out for Jesus' best interest, we can assume. Um, so that's what's going on here. I, and my question is, how, how would you respond? <laughs> how would you respond if a group of people comes to you and they say that a man who is known for killing other people wants to kill you? You know, it's like they come to you and, and, and they said that this mobster, you know, he's got a price on your head. He wants to kill you. How, how would you respond? I mean, I would be scared. How does Jesus respond? Jesus says, I'd like you to take a message to Herod. <laughs> and here's how the message begins. He says, Dear Herod. You are a sly, conniving, deceitful, and destructive fox. <laughs> That's how he begins his message. That, that, Jesus just says, I, I want you to tell him that he's a fox. That he's, he's deceitful, he's sly, he's, he's destructive. That Leon Morris, the commentator, says that Herod is the only person that Jesus treats with contempt. Isn't that interesting? Jesus doesn't talk to other people like this. Does not, Jesus is not the kind of guy that calls other people names. you know. <laughs> but he calls Herod a fox. And even just before Jesus is crucified, you remember he goes and he meets Herod. Herod, this this powerful man, and he gives him the silent treatment. Doesn't even talk to him. Won't even give him the time of day. And Jesus is in control of the situation. So Herod, though, I mean, Herod's recognized throughout the land. He's if he's not respected, he's a, he's at least feared. But Jesus is sort of looking down the barrel of Herod's gun, and he doesn't even flinch. In a sense, he laughs at Herod. How does Jesus do that? What, what makes you, in the face of death, in the face of someone threatening your life, how can you just say, go tell that fox, I'm going to do whatever I want? I think part of it is that, that he has confidence in God's sovereign plan. And that's kind of, this is Jesus' control. We're thinking about how does the sovereignty of God change the way that we live. And Jesus has full confidence in the control of God over the situation. He says, listen, Go tell that fox, behold, I'm going to cast out demons, I'm going to perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I will finish my course. He said, I'm going to keep doing everything that I've been doing, and Herod's threat is not going to stop me in any way, shape, or form. I'm going to keep doing what God has called me to do. This is my task, this is what God has sent me to do, and I'm going to accomplish it. The reference there to the third day uh, obviously makes us think about the resurrection. That that's when he accomplished what he did. And I think that's probably an illusion of sorts. But the emphasis probably is more that that he has a set task ahead of him. I'm going to perform cures. I'm going to do what I'm called to do right now. And when the time comes, I'm going to complete my course. I'm going to do what God has called me to do. And that ultimately is to bring about the redemption of his people. That he's going to do it through death and through resurrection, he knows that 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 is coming. He knows that that is his, his path, that he's going to do all these things. And he knows that Herod can do absolutely nothing to stop him. And so he says to Herod, you can say whatever you want, but you can't do anything to me, because God has a plan for what is going to happen in my life, and it doesn't involve you killing me. He says he has to actually move on out of the region, Verse thirty-three. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. He says, "I am going to leave, but I just want you—I want to be clear. I'm not leaving because Herod is threatening me. (laughs) He wants to make sure that everyone knows that I'm not scared of Herod. That's not why I'm leaving. I'm leaving because I have a place to go, and the place is Jerusalem. We've seen this, right? That this is Jesus has set his face." To go to Jerusalem, we saw them in verse 22. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. He has a destination. He's going somewhere. He's going to Jerusalem because that is where God is taking him so that he can die and accomplish the redemption of all people. He says, it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. So they have to go to Jerusalem because that's where prophets die. Cities are known for different things. Uh, I was born and raised in North Canton, Ohio, which used to be known as the home of the Hoover Company. If you had a Hoover vacuum, it was made in my hometown, which is now, they're not made there anymore. They're made somewhere else. But uh, I, I was from North Canton, which is near Canton. If you know Canton, Ohio, Canton, Ohio is known as the place of the Pro Football Hall of Fame, which is just south of Akron. And Akron is known to some as well, where Goodyear Tires are headquartered, but now as the birthplace of LeBron James, right? Uh, so that's Akron. And and Akron is just south of Cleveland, which is known as the place that had so much pollution in its river that it set it on fire. Uh That's what Cleveland's known for, the mistake by the lake, as they call it. So, There's cities that are known for different things. Louisville. Louisville might be known as the home of the cards. It's probably more known as the place where the Kentucky Derby is. So that, that's what Louisville's known as. Jerusalem is known as the place that kills prophets. <laughs> that's what Jesus is saying. That if a prophet's going to die, he's got to go to Jerusalem, because that's what they do. They kill prophets. That's not something that you really want to be known for, is it? But but here Jesus is saying that, that anytime someone comes to Jerusalem, that, that there is opposition, that people will not listen to that prophet. In fact, they won't listen to him so much that they will kill him. We're going to see that more in the next section, verses 34 through 35. But, but thinking about this, what, what can we learn from Jesus' example? What can we learn from these words of Jesus? This confidence. Herod comes, threatens his life, and he says, Go tell that fox that I'm going to do whatever I want because God has a plan laid out for me. And it doesn't involve me being killed by Herod in this area. I'm going to Jerusalem, and I will die there. Interesting. He still knows he's going to die. Fear of death doesn't change where he's going. He's not scared of Herod, and he's also not scared of going to Jerusalem. So I'm not scared of you, Herod, because you can't kill me. And I'm not scared of going to Jerusalem, even though that does mean I'm going to die, because that's God's plan for what is ahead of me. So here's some questions as we think about applying this. We should ask ourselves, do I live in fear? Or do I live in the confidence of God's sovereign plan in the world and in my life? Do I live in fear? Or do I live with confidence in God's sovereign plan, His control over everything in the world, and specifically in my own life? There's a lot of things to be afraid of in the world. There's a lot of things that we can be scared of. Kids, if you're in here listening, you, there's things that you're scared of, right? Sometimes at night, the lights are out and it's scary. It's, life is, is scared. There's, there's things that I am scared about. Sometimes I'm scared for my kids. Um, I'm the kind of person that if if my uh, wife is a half hour late, then my mind goes, "Oh no, it's over. Something terrible happens. You know, uh, this fear in our lives. Uh, Russell and I were just talking this week about some of this. Uh, this uh, in in Jeffersonville, this terrible thing that happened. There's terrible things on the news all the time. If you want to be scared of something, there are there's lots of things to be scared of. Do we live our lives in fear, or do we live them in confidence? of God's sovereign plan, that there, that there is a plan that God has, and nothing can change that plan, that we have a course today, tomorrow, and the third day. Whatever the third day is, I will complete my course. Whatever it is, whenever God's plan for me is fulfilled, whether it's today or tomorrow or 70 years from now, i would be pretty old, but whatever it is that God has a plan, and that will be accomplished. Jesus shows us that the, the powerful people of this world should not intimidate us. People like Herod. You can laugh at someone like Herod. Someone who pretends that they have power. They think that they are in control. Jesus is the one that is control in control of all things. God is in control of all these world powers. So we see the world going a little crazy with this whole ISIS thing. And it is scary, but we can look at that and we can say, God is still in control of this universe. It's not out of his control he can still stop this whenever he wants to we can look at diseases like ebola and ebola is not hitting us but there are things that hit us there are diseases there there are sickness that, that comes to us it comes to our family and we can know that god is sovereign we have no need to fear now that doesn't mean that those things don't come to us that they don't affect us they do affect us But we don't have to fear because we know that God is sovereign, that God is in control. And the wicked things of this world, they can't thwart, they can't ruin, they can't spoil, they can't stop the plan of God. He will do what he wants to do. Now, I think Jesus is unique because he knows exactly what's going to happen, right? I know I'm going to Jerusalem. I know I will be crucified. I don't know that. You don't know that. I don't think you know that unless you've had some sort of supernatural knowledge where you know exactly what's going to happen in your future. So how do we live in that? I think that what came to my mind is the is the the story that we all know so well, maybe um, from Sunday school, of Shadrach, Meshach, and I always called him Abednego, but I think it's Abednego is, is probably the way you're supposed to say it, but um, whatever it is. Do you remember this story where they have this, this giant statue that these three guys are supposed to bow down to and worship. And they were Jewish people. They worshiped God, and they said, we're not bowing down. And and Nebuchadnezzar says, if you don't bow down, that's fine, but I'm going to throw you into the fiery furnace. And they say, that's fine. And listen to their words here in the book of Daniel. In Daniel um, chapter 3, he says, if you don't bow down, I'm going to throw you into the fiery furnace. And, what, and and who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and, and this is Daniel 3.16, answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. <laughs> if this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. They say, God can deliver us. He's in control of You think that you are in control of this situation, Nebuchadnezzar, but God is in control. And he can save us now, right now, even though we we look totally helpless, God can save us. And then they say, but if not, (laughs) so if he doesn't save us, if not, we want to be clear on something. Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up." Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had not read Daniel chapter 3 before this happened. They didn't know what was going to happen. And such is our lives, Right? We don't know. There are things that are scary. There are things that threaten us. And there are things that may come to us. And we can say with confidence, God can deliver me from that. But we can also say, and if he doesn't, then that's fine too. We can say with Paul, to live is Christ. To die is gain. Nothing can harm me. If we're held in God's hand, there's nothing to fear. No powerful ruler. no, No disease. No destruction. No... No issues that you can come up with that, that, that make you cower in fear, that make you lock the door, or maybe buy an extra deadbolt. Nothing, none of those things can harm us ultimately in but if we are in Christ, if we are with God, He is protecting us, even as Jesus stands here and says Nothing. You 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 have no power over me, Herod. And so, do we live in fear, or do we live in confidence? I I think another question that might be good to ask is: Are am I Herod? (laughs) Do I act like Herod sometimes? And in the sense of, do we live imagining that we are in control of things more than we really are? (laughs) Do we have a false sense of our own power and ability? I think we can fall into that to thinking that we are controlling things maybe a little bit more than we are. And it's good to step back and say, you know what, any good that I'm doing, any any power that is in me has been granted by God. I am not doing this in and of myself. It's only God that is working in me. Because Herod has just such a a messed up view of of his own power. I think that can happen to us as well. Another question that's going to kind of bleed into the next one is, are, are we Jerusalem? So Jerusalem is a city that's marked by killing prophets. Meaning marked by not heeding God's word, not listening to God's word. Am I a person that has heard God's word so often that maybe I don't listen to it as well as I should? Have I become numb to the word of God to me? Or am I also someone that maybe just always rejects the word of God? That my life is marked by rejection of God's word as it comes to me? This is a good... Thoughts to to zero in on our hearts. So just we see here again the control of Jesus in the face of false power. And it should drive us to say that we don't need to be afraid of anything that comes at us. We can live in confidence in the sovereignty of God. It should also remind us that we may not be in as much control as we really think we are, but that God is in control of everything and that we submit to his own hand. I think even Jesus realized that, didn't he? Even even Jesus is saying, my life is in the hand of God. God is the one that is guiding everything that I'm doing. So th- there's a sense in which we all need to hold on to that. And also, are we Jerusalem? Is our life marked by rejection of the message of God? So that's the control of God in the face of false power. Verses 34-35, through 35, I want to think about this phrase, the the compassion of Jesus in the face of stubborn unbelief the compassion of Jesus in the face of stubborn unbelief. He says here in verse 34, let's just look at these verses again, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often, how often I wish I could have gathered you together like a mother hen gathering her her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. This is a A very interesting phrase. I think we need to tackle this. He says, Jerusalem, I wanted to gather you, but you did not want to be gathered. Therefore, you have not been gathered. That's a theological thought we got to think about here, okay? So, So go deep with me for a minute. How can Jesus, who is God and can do whatever He wants, how can He want something? But it sure looks like The fact that the people don't want it means that Jesus doesn't get what he wants. Does that make sense? So God is sovereign over all things. He can do whatever he wants. He wants to gather Jerusalem, to gather Israel under his wings, but Jerusalem doesn't want to. Therefore, Jesus can't. That's difficult, isn't it? (laughs) Can the will of God be hindered by the will of man? Can God's will be thwarted, be stopped by the will of man? How can this be? I think a good thing just to remember as, as you read through Scripture. So we're going a little deeper. This is, this is uh, for extra credit maybe, okay? So let's think about it. In, as, as the Bible talks about God's will and how He works in the world, we, we're going to think about it in, in two terms. God's will of desire and God's will of decree. Those are two different things. So God can have a will. He can desire something. But he also has a will of decree. The The desires of God don't always necessarily happen. But God's will of decree always happens. If he has said it will happen, it will happen. So, we can read in, in the epistles, this is God's will, your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality is what uh, Paul writes. Now, does that always happen for a believer? No, but that's God's will. But it doesn't always happen. What we read in Second Peter. Let me read to you Second Peter 3. We're studying Second Peter in Sunday school. We haven't got here yet. It'll be a little while. But Second Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises. Some count slowness, but is patient towards you. Not wishing, not willing that any should perish. He doesn't want anyone to perish, but that all should reach repentance. That's what God desires. God wants everyone to repent and everyone to be saved. Will everyone be saved? No. So there is this difference in Scripture that we have to remember. is going, And I think that's what's going on here is Jesus is expressing compassion and love for his people. Do you see the heart of Jesus? Oh, Jerusalem. Jerusalem. It's this, this repetition is just, he's, his heart is aching for his people. Jerusalem. I, he says, I wish you would have obeyed the law more so that I could accept you. I wish you would stop sinning so that you could earn back my love. Is that what he's saying? That's not at all what he's saying. What's he saying? I just want you to come like like little chicks, and I want to gather you under my wings like a mother hen. Can you believe that Jesus is doing that? Even saying that right now, I would never say that. I'd like to gather you as little chicks underneath my wings. But Jesus is so compassionate. He's, he's saying, I am like a mother hen. I'm like a mom, and, and I just want... All my little babies to be underneath my wings. That's what you are like to me, Israel. Jerusalem, I love you. I just want you to come underneath my wings. You won't do it. You won't come to me. I keep coming to you and you keep rejecting me. This is not a picture of works. This is a picture of faith. He's saying, I'm not asking you to do a lot of things to so that I would love you more. I just want you to come and find shelter under my wings. This is the gospel, okay? The gospel is not that, that God wants us to earn his love. He's, he's saying in the gospel, he's saying, I am providing salvation for you. And all I want you to do is come and be protected by me. Just come to me in faith. Turn from your sin. Come and believe in me and I will protect you and I will love you and I will care for you. That's all I want from you. I don't want you to do a bunch of good works to be made right before me. Just, just come to me. This is what all the prophets did for Israel. They would come to Israel and they would say, turn back to God and live. They'd come to Jerusalem and they'd say, God is angry with you for your sin and judgment is coming, but if you will repent, he will show compassion to you. All the true prophets were calling God's people to turn from their sin and all the false prophets came and said, everything's fine, don't worry about it. Don't listen to these guys. And they got mad at the false prophets for telling people to turn from their sin, for saying that judgment was coming. And in the same way, Jesus comes and he says, judgment is coming, but now is the day of salvation. You can be saved. Come. Come to me. I I offer, I've come to to bring salvation to you. But they rejected, they rejected, they rejected. They wouldn't listen to him. They would not turn. Instead, Jerusalem becomes a city and Israel becomes a people that is marked by unbelief. That, That they have this passionate rejection for the word of God, so much so that they would actually kill the prophets. The prophets would come and would speak this message of repentance and faith, come back to God. And Israel would be so angry with that, and so unwilling to say, yes, we have sinned and we do need to come back to God. So unwilling that they would kill them, that they would stone these prophets. You can read about it in the Old Testament, how they did this. And isn't this foreshadowing? Jesus, who is the last and the greatest prophet, He says, I'm going to Jerusalem because that's where prophets die. I'm going to go and I'm going to take this message. And they will reject me. I will be rejected by everyone. No one will be with me. And I will be killed. I will be crucified. And it's foreshadowing to the early church too. As Stephen is martyred. As as the Jews kill him because he was calling them to believe in Jesus. And James is killed as well continue to reject, and they reject so much that they're willing to kill people because they don't get it. You just see Jesus's heart here, don't you? Uh, imagine that you see your children, if you have kids, or just think of someone that you love if you don't have kids, and you see them walking into danger, you see them walking into destruction, and you call to them, you beg to them, come, come back, please, do not I don't want you to die, I don't want you to go into that place, please come here. And they continue to walk away. Continue to leave, and you see them going into destruction. This is Jesus' heart. He says, You're going away from me. All I want is to love you. I just want to show you kindness and grace and mercy, and you just keep walking away from me. For some of you, that is God's heart for you. He's saying, I, I, I just, I want to draw you in. It's him that talks about he draws us with cords of love. He says, I, I, want, I want you to come. I, I'm like this mother hen that cares for you. And I'm not asking you to bring anything. I'm asking you simply to take refuge in my wings, to admit that you have sinned, to put your faith in me, and to trust me. And you keep walking away. And Jesus, insert your name there for Jerusalem. Oh, Andy, Andy, why do you keep walking away? I just want you to come. I just want you to find protection. in don't, my Don't go away. Jesus, it's like the words of Ezekiel. He tells Ezekiel, say to them, As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He says, I don't. This does not bring me joy. It doesn't bring me joy to watch my children walk away and be destructed. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But that the wicked... Turn from his way and live. Turn back. Turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? I don't want this. And yet sin must be punished. And so he will. If they continue to reject, then he will ultimately reject them. And That's what we see here, isn't it? Verse 35, Behold, your house is forsaken. I don't totally know everything that that means. Behold, your house is forsaken. What does that mean for the future of Israel? What does that mean in this context? I, I think at least it's probably an allusion to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. So there's this, the, the temple um, was destroyed as Israel was taken over by um, its enemies. And so that might be part of it. There's also this Old Testament picture. The threat is always that. That God will take His presence away from them. That's the scariest thing to Israel is when God says, "I will leave you, I will forsake you, I will not come near to you." And so that, that's this this picture. He says, "I'm going to your house is forsaken. Your house is is forsaken. You have no hope of salvation at this point." And yet we continue to see His compassion. I think in the next phrase, and I tell you. You will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's that from Psalm 118 that we read to start the service. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The other place that we know that that shows up is in the triumphal entry, where the people are saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I don't think that this is referring to that, but is actually probably referring to his second coming. So when Jesus comes again and people will look and say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He's speaking of a day when he will return and those will there will be people who look and say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There is a sense, Philippians tells us, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So there is a sense in which all of humanity that has ever lived will bow the knee, they will recognize who he is. Whether now or later, everyone will see who he is and say, he has come from the Lord. But there's such a positive note here that I think what Jesus is referring to is that there will come a day, Israel, when you, when you stop killing the prophets. When you finally say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now this is a mystery. And, and Paul talks about this day of, of the ingathering of the Jews, that there is a day of salvation when, when there will be a large chunk of Israel, of God's people, the Jews, who will be saved. And I think that maybe that's what Jesus is talking about here that there will be a day in the future, around the time before I return, when a large number of the Jewish people will come back to faith. They've rejected, 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 but they will say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We can talk about that later. I'm not totally sure, but we can discuss that. I think that's what he's talking about. But what what it says here, though, is that Jesus is full of compassion. He continues to plead with his people. He continues to. We're going to see in the next chapter, chapter 14, verse 1, one Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees. He keeps going to the Pharisees' house. They keep rejecting him, and he just keeps coming. He just keeps showing up and saying, I'm going to continue to preach the gospel. He continues to send prophets. Jesus himself, the Son, comes and says, Will you listen? Jerusalem, Jerusalem, turn from your sin. This is the heart of God. He is full of compassion. We give up on people so easy, don't we? They're a lost cause. <laughs> no hope for them. And we'd look at Israel and we'd say, they killed prophets. They killed Jesus. There's no hope for them. But then we turn the page and we look at Acts 2. And their eyes are open. Peter says, You killed the author of life. And there's enough people that say, You're right, we did. Forgive us, and God says you are forgiven. You're the ones that actually killed Jesus, but you are forgiven, and you receive mercy. So I think we should not give up. We should recognize God's patience. And if you have not turned to Jesus, why would you turn away from this Savior? Why, why, why would you why would you walk away from Him? I mean, do you see this compassion? Do you see this heart of Jesus that He is He is pleading? And what does He want from you? He just wants you to come. He just wants you to come so that he can embrace you and love and bring you acceptance and make you a part of his family and adopt you as one of his children. That's what Jesus wants. He's not asking anything from you except that you would turn from sin and turn to him. It is foolishness and it is so sad if we would resist him. Just imagine uh, uh, if you can picture a a father or a mother pleading with a child who who is walking into destruction of some kind. And that child will not turn. That's the picture of those that are just that are walking away from Christ. He says, "Just come back, please." I think it's good for us to look at this picture too, and to see that this is us. We're not the hen. Who are we? We are little chicks. (laughs) We're we're just these little helpless chicks. We have we have no hope of survival in this world apart from Jesus. We have no hope of survival for eternity apart from Christ. If he leaves us, if he does not shelter us under his wings, we are lost forever. There is no hope for us. But Jesus lovingly says, I I invite you to come and to just be sheltered underneath my wings. I think that's a good place to, to be, isn't it? I'd encourage you this week just to remember that that picture. Like I said, it's not something that I usually think about myself as a little chick underneath the wings of Jesus, but he personifies himself as that. Might we live like that this week? Just wake up every morning and say, God, I am helpless. I have no hope in this world except for the fact that in your compassion and grace, you have called me and you've drawn me in near to you and you've made me one of your, your little chicks. And I'm protected by your wings, and I will be protected for all eternity. And I just want to live in that place. I just want to live in the place of understanding God's love and acceptance and His compassion for me. And, and as we live in that place of love and compassion, we're, we're also in a place of, of complete safety because God is in control. God is in complete control of everything that happens around us. Nothing can harm us. We, we can face things with confidence knowing that we are protected by Christ. We are under His wings, but also that that we are in His plan. That, that nothing can thwart the plan of God in this world or in my life. He will accomplish what He wants to with me and in the world. And if I am living for His glory, then that then that brings me great comfort. So. We're thinking again just, just to remember you, that um, the control of Jesus in the face of false power. A lot of false power in this world. It's as you face it this week, just remember God is in control. He's in control of my life, and he's way more in control than I am. Remember the compassion of Jesus. The compassion, compassionate love of Jesus towards you that he has gathered you in. Or that he is calling to you to come in but also his compassion and his grace towards others, to those in stubborn unbelief who continue to reject him. Let's continue to go. Maybe this is a message for someone that you know. It's a message for us, yes, but maybe you just need to go to someone who is trapped in stubborn unbelief and just say, you know what? I want you to know what Jesus is like. He's a mother hen, and he's just calling you to come and find safety. Just come and be protected by him. It's a message of the gospel that we can share with others. Well, let's, um, let's just pause and take a moment of silence and continue to meditate. Uh, maybe the Holy Spirit has something specific for you to just pray through and think on even now as we take this moment. But let's just allow him to speak to us, and um, I'll close this in prayer in a moment. Father, we confess that we are not as strong as we think we are. We are in much more need than we realize. We thank you for your sovereign control over all things. Lord, if we were left in control, there would be no hope for us. But you are in control. You are guiding our lives. You are guiding this world. And there is nothing for us to fear. Lord, we thank you for your compassion. You have drawn us in with cords of love. You have made us your children. Lord, as hard as it is for our pride maybe to say, we are just little chicks underneath your wing. We are hopeless and helpless apart from you, but we are gathered in. We are part of your family. You love us. You care for us, God. So I pray that you would you'd make us more like yourself this week. And that also, God, you would just cause us to rest in you to rest in your sovereignty, to rest in your control, to rest in your compassion and your kindness. We thank you for Jesus. Lord, it's, it's only through him that we can have these things. We pray it all in his name. Amen.